Good morning again. Thank you. Um, I had a good conversation, actually a two and a half hour meeting with Stephen Jen Hagen, who you may know uh, served with IMB in a partnership with Global Empowerment in the Philippines, uh, reaching, uh, well, actually they're in the process of reaching about 100,000 unreached people uh, uh, from who are part of the Agta uh, tribal group. And the Agta has many different facets, many different tribal groups. And uh, I really had meant to, uh, to just kind of pass along to you some of the good news, but, but I, um, um, uh, Jen is going to make a little video for us, and uh, they can, there's just some things that are happening there that are truly exciting. Had us had us all in tears while we were sitting and talking about what God is doing there. Um, Steve and Jen, of course, are, are sent out by our church. I don't know if you, if you know that, uh, but uh, would they consider us to be their home church, their sending church. And so anything that they accomplish, they accomplish there on our behalf. And that's why I wanted to bring that, that news to you. We uh, were making our way through the, the, the book of Job. Uh, not the book of Job. <laughs> Imagine how surprised I was to, to have said that, because I have not prepared anything from the book of Job. Um, actually, this morning, I, I guess is what I need to say this morning, we're going to be continuing our studies in the book of James in a series entitled Advice from a Brother You Can Trust, and this is part 33 and entitled The Perseverance of Job. So you can see why I, I, was, I made that terrible blunder. We'll be looking at James chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, and the advice that James will give us there. Last week, we unpacked James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, and we looked at that passage through the lens of a, of a story about something that hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, we told a story about something that hasn't happened because we, well, we crafted a story from a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, Paul told the Corinthian church that we who follow Jesus will all someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that he can evaluate, so that he can, uh, we can give an account, there can be an accounting made of what we accomplished while we were here on earth. And, and I guess that can sound scary, but... Uh, You've probably been to an awards ceremony for a local football team. I don't know if you've ever had that, that privilege, but uh, awards ceremonies are not usually scary, right? Would you agree with that? Unless you're hoping to get an award in the awards ceremony and you're afraid you're not going to get one. That can be unnerving as you stand there. And someone in the awards ceremony is named the MVP, the most valuable player that's not most vulnerable player. I had that honor several years in a row. But the most valuable player. But, but if, you, if you don't realize it yet, the MVP award is not an equal opportunity award. Uh, there's, there's very few people that are going to qualify to be even in the running for that award at the end of the season. I say that because I, I follow some sports uh, fairly closely, and sometimes I'll watch the award ceremony that goes with that particular season. But I have to say that when they announce the MVP for that, that particular season, I never, ever say, I never heard of that guy. 
It's never anybody that you never heard of. It's never the guy that, that sits on the end of the water bench and, and guards the water jug. It's that, that guy is never considered to be the most valuable. Usually, the, the MVP is, is, the, is a very talented player who did the most to help his or her team succeed. The one who contributes most to the success of the team is, by virtue of the term, the most valuable player. But let's be honest, an unskilled player is never the MVP. It just doesn't happen. Um, he might get the most improved award, but he's not going to get the MVP. Now, it'd be easy to carry the MVP idea over to the judgment seat of Christ, and I think that some of us do that. In other words, we might assume that the people who have the greatest skills and who use those skills to contribute most to the success of God's kingdom or the building of God's kingdom, it, it just makes sense to us that they'll get the greatest rewards. But that would give an unfair advantage to the people who are the most gifted. I mean, if God has given that guy more spiritual gifts than he's given me, how fair is it to compare my success to his success? He started out ahead of me right out of the starting blocks. How fair would that be? And Jesus would agree. Look at what Luke 12, 48 says. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Much more than is asked from other people. In other words, the person who's multi-gifted and, and multi-talented has no advantage over the person who is simply average or what we might call normal. That's because Jesus taught that much more would be demanded. Much more would be required of the person to whom much more has been given. That means that since that guy is more gifted than I am, God will require much more of him than he requires of me. And that means that that guy, has much great, that, guy that has much greater advantage than I have, uh, he, he's not going to be as successful as we might like to think because God is going to hold him to a higher standard. God uses a higher standard to measure the people who ha who, to whom he has given the greatest gifts. So that means that if God gives you more gifts than he gives me, he'll also require more of you than he requires of me. So in order for you to be rewarded for doing what God requires of you, you'll have to do more than I will to be rewarded for doing what God requires of me. I, I don't mean to confuse us here. I just mean to say that that method of accounting balances itself out. The people who get the, the, the greatest gifts are the ones uh, who are, uh, of whom more is required, and that standard is used then when the rewards are giving out as we given out as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But how does it work when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Well, will, will Jesus measure my success against your success? And uh, will, will my reward, reward be based on some kind of competition between you and me? I mean, I already don't like those odds if we've been called to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If there's some chance that you're going to get, well, I, you know, I, I just, I'm just thinking. But if you think about it, there's a formula that judges use when they're deciding on who gets the MVP award. And those of you who love math are just going to love this. The formula seems to be SS times SR equals A. In other words, the skill set that the person has multiplied by the success rate equals the award. That's pretty much what the MVP award is. The MVP award is given to someone who has a high degree of skills and uses those skills most consistently 
to contribute to the success of the entire team. That's why he's the MB MVP, most valued player. But the truth is, unskilled players rarely receive the MVP award. So that leads us to the question, is that the formula that Jesus is going to use when we stand before him? If it is, then I have to tell you that I find that demotivating. Because since Jesus didn't give me a very large skill set, that means that my success rate uh, will make me an underachiever. So my chances of getting the award are slim to nothing. I'm not, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. I'm not the most gifted player on the field. And so how could I expect to get an a reward at all if Jesus is going to use that formula? I mean, think about it. If one of you were to suggest to me that I could compete in, in 2024 for the gold medal in the 100-meter sprint, <laughs> I'm smart enough to say no right now. I'm not going to spend two years here training, three years here training to, uh, to, to compete. I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try. I don't have the necessary gifts. I don't have the talents or the skill to qualify or succeed, so there's no point in my trying, and that means I won't be competing in the Olympics in 2024. And I think that there are a lot of us who look at the judgment seat of Christ in the same way. I don't have the gifts that that person has. I don't have what it takes. I'm not going to receive the reward, so what's the point in trying? Why should I get involved? I, get, I have so many other things that are distracting me, so many other things that I need to see to. Why think about a reward that I'm not going to get until after I'm dead, and it's just going to be small anyway because, well, I didn't have much to work with. And I have to say, I agree with you. The judgment seat of Christ, the, the award, rewards there work the same as the MVP award. I'm out. So for those of you who came to church last week discouraged, I hope you went home encouraged uh, by the end of our time together as we looked at the real accounting method that Jesus is going to use when we stand before him at, at his judgment seat. Remember, in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, Paul wasn't talking about competing in a sport. He did talk about competing in a sport in other passages, but in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, he wasn't talking about, he didn't talk about competing in a sport. He was talking about, about building the church, adding to the structure of the church. And he wasn't talking about gifts or talents or skills. He was talking about the quality of the materials we use when we build. That's what he was talking about. Paul was talking about how much it cost us to build, and that resonates with what Jesus said to his followers when he called them. Jesus didn't ask them to imagine how much impact they could have. He asked them to consider how much it would cost them to have that impact. That was the guiding principle when they were considering whether or not they would serve him and follow him. That means that Jesus really won't, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, Jesus isn't going to take your skills, gifts, or talents into account when he determines your reward. He, he, he will not take uh, the amount of impact that you had on the kingdom into account when he determines your reward. According to Paul, there are going to be two things that Jesus takes into account when he determines the reward that you'll receive, that he's going to give you. He will measure your kingdom motives to determine how much of what you did was done for the advancement of God's kingdom. And parenthetically here, God will not reward you for things that you did for yourself. That's just not how it works. And secondly, according to Paul, God will measure your level of personal 
sacrifice to determine how much it cost for you to do the things that, that God asked you to do for the advancement of his kingdom. And parenthetically again, God will not reward you for things that cost you nothing. That just, that just isn't the way the judgment seat of Christ will work. And if you're interested in the formula, Jesus will use, here it is, KM times PS equals R. Jesus will multiply your level of kingdom motivation by your level of personal sacrifice to determine the size of your reward. Those are the two things that he'll take into account according to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. Well, if you're going to have a, a, a formula, then we need to have a story problem, right? Are, do we have any math teachers here? Uh, it, it, well, all of them are, are ashamed to admit it, apparently. Um, but we have to have a story problem. I, I, and it's a good thing you didn't raise your hand because I might have had you come up here and, and work the story problem for us just so that you know, we could sort that out there. But, but let's just imagine that, that Fred is a pastor who speaks every Sunday morning at a local church. He keeps showing up and, and speaking every Sunday quite faithfully because, well, because he likes the money that the church people give him for doing his job. That's why he keeps showing up. He, he doesn't feel like it necessarily, but he, he likes the money. And he's been preaching for a lot of years now, so he doesn't, he doesn't have to put too much time into studying God's Word uh, because it's just easier to shoot from the hip when he stands up front. Wilma, on the other hand, hasn't been going to the local church for very long because her family just recently moved into the area. Um, she's someone who, who longs for all of her neighbors to know Jesus, and, and so she spends time praying for them every day. She constantly reaches out to her neighbors and goes out of her way to show them kindness because she's looking for an opportunity to share Jesus with them. So two questions. There's the story problem. Two questions. Which of these two people is likely to have the greatest impact? Which one will be the MVP? And which of these two people will likely receive the greater reward at the judgment seat of Christ if we pay attention to those formulas? Well, if we use the, the, uh, the MVP formula that's up there, SS times SR equals A, skill set times success rate equals reward, then Fred's going to get the MVP award. He, he is. Not because he has a greater skill set than Wilma does, and, and not because he works harder than she does, but because he has the privilege every Sunday of talking to more people than Wilma has an opportunity to talk to in the course of a week. And just by the law of averages, Fred has the greatest potential for success. Because if you, even if only 10% of the people respond to his message, well, there's going to be some success there. If 10% of the people respond to Wilma's message, well, that's not going to be the same number of people. But if we use the formula that Jesus will use at the judgment seat of Christ, I think you'll see that we'll end up with a different result. KM times PS equals R. Kingdom motivation times personal sacrifice equals reward. Fred may be the MVP, but when it comes to getting a kingdom reward, we would have to say that Fred's kingdom motivation was pretty low. He's not really in it for the sake of the kingdom. He's in it for the sake of the money that he gets. And his personal sacrifice was pretty low as well. He prefers to shoot from the hip instead of studying God's word to prepare for a Sunday morning message. So when you multiply Fred's low kingdom motivation by his low personal sacrifice, Fred shouldn't really expect much of a reward when he stands before Jesus. 
But again, that doesn't mean that Fred won't be named MVP down here on earth because even though it costs him nothing to prepare his messages, it might be that some people will still like his cheap sermons. And the board of the church may give him a raise, which after all is what Fred wanted in the first place. And this is where Jesus would say that Fred has gotten his reward. He has received his reward already. In other words, he's already received what he wanted, so there'll be no reward waiting for him in heaven. But what about Wilma? Well, her kingdom motivation was off the charts. And the hours she spent praying for, for, for and, and reaching out to her neighbors required a great deal of personal sacrifice. So when you multiply her high kingdom motivation by her high personal sacrifice, she's entitled to a huge reward by the way Jesus accounts for things. But remember, everyone noticed Fred, so he got his reward right here on earth. But it's likely that very few people even noticed what Wilma was doing. She was out there working. She was spending time alone praying and in her neighborhood, reaching out to people and baking cookies for them and just loving them and looking for an opportunity to share Jesus with them. But it's likely that she'll have to wait until she gets to heaven to receive her reward because it's probable that no one noticed what she was up to. And that's why James said last week that, that people like Wilma, and there are a lot of you here this morning, people like Wilma must be patient as they wait for the Lord to return. In Revelation 22:12, some of the coolest words in the New Testament, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. He's accounting. And in fact, the scripture is very clear. He actually knows, listen to me, he actually knows how many tears you've cried. Not how often you've cried, He's kept track of every tear that coursed its way down your cheek. He is aware of your personal sacrifice as you serve him. Okay, then, moving on. Let's just say that we're, we're all going to continue making personal sacrifices as we work to build God's kingdom, and we're all willing to wait patiently until Jesus returns because we know that he'll have his reward uh, the reward that he's going to give to you, he'll have it with him when he gets here. He's not going to ask you to wait all eternity. And, uh, and, and, and if both of those things are true, then I, I have two questions. What does waiting patiently look like? What does that look like? And how long are we likely to have to wait? Well, as we seek the answers to those two questions, it's, uh, I guess it's important at this point that we stand together and read aloud the passage for this morning. And I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess, but I'm not going to show you the passage just yet, but you can stand. I don't, I, I, I love that authority that I have. People are looking at me to, to go like this, you know, just makes me feel, you know. <clears throat> but anyway, um, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to guess that you'll know who the story from God's Word is, is going to be about this morning when you read the passage with me aloud. So will you read with me together from James chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. 
Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. <sighs> Harsh words again. You can take your seats, confident that God blesses us with his word, with his truth every time we read his word. I, I want to tell you a story from God's word this morning, and, and of course the story is about Job. Yeah, um, <laughs> you got no excuse. I mean, after the way I screwed up right there at the beginning, but the story is about Job. The man has been on my mind this past week. I'll warn you, it's a long story, but before you start complaining about how long the story is, I want to remind you, Job had to live this story. You only have to listen to it, okay? So buckle your seatbelts and, and, and do try to stay awake. And uh, with that background, this is the story from God's Word from the book of Job. In the days of old, there was a land called Uz. Uh, and this is the place that would, would later go by the name Edom uh, in, in that transition. And it covered parts of what is now uh, become known as Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. A man named Job lived there in Uz, and he was by any measure a remarkable man. He was honest, and he did what was right. And he also deeply respected God, and he avoided evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He also had a large number of people who served him on his rather considerable estate. In short, he was the greatest and wealthiest man among all of the people in the East. His seven sons used to hold feasts in their homes, particularly on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to celebrate with them, uh, and they would sometimes celebrate for, together for days as, as one big happy family. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make preparations to make sacrifices, to offer sacrifices on behalf of his children. Early in the morning, he would offer a burnt sacrifice for each of them because he thought that it might be possible that one of his children might have sinned and, and cursed God in his or her heart for one reason or another. Job offered sacrifices for his children after every birthday, and he made offerings at other times during the year. I guess you could say it was his regular custom. One day, while all of this was happening in the land of Uz, another scene was unfolding up there in heaven. The angels have come to present themselves before the Lord, which also seems to be a regular custom up there. Satan, whose name means adversary, also presented himself before God on that day. Where have you come from? God asked Satan. Roaming around throughout the earth, going back and forth all over the place, Satan replied. And the Lord said to him, have you thought about my servant Job? There isn't anyone on earth like him. He's honest. He does what's right. He has respect for me, and, and he avoids evil. <laughs> right, Satan said. Of course Job's a good guy. Of course, he, uh, he, of course he does what's right, because you always give him everything that he needs. And that's why he has respect for you. Haven't you guarded his family? Haven't you taken care of everything he has? Haven't you blessed him and blessed everything that he does? And now his flocks and herds are, are, are spread all through the land. But I'm telling you right now, Satan said to God, that if you reach out your hand and you take away everything that he has, 
If you take away everything he has, the whole picture of Job will change. In fact, I'm sure he'll say evil things about you. And heck, he'll even call you. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, all right, I'm handing everything that he has, everything that he owns over to you, but don't touch the man himself. And Satan left the Lord and went on his way. One day, sometime after Satan's conversation with God, Job's sons and daughters were at their older brother's house. They were, they were enjoying good food and, and good fellowship, and they were drinking wine together and just generally having a good time. In the meantime, while that was happening, one of Job's servants came running up to him where he was. He wasn't at the feast, but one of his servants came running up with a message for Job. He said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were eating grass near them and, and suddenly the Sabaeans attacked from nowhere and carried off all of the animals and they killed the servants with their swords and, and, and then Job's servant concluded and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a second messenger came running up. He said, God, God sent lightning from the sky, and it struck the sheep and killed them. It also burned up all of the other servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger came running up. He said, the Chaldeans separated themselves into three groups. They attacked the camels and, and carried them off. They killed the rest of the servants with the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, a fourth messenger came running up and said, your sons and daughters were at their oldest brother's house. They were enjoying good food and, and drinking wine together when suddenly a, a strong wind blew in from the desert. It struck the four corners of the house all at the same time, and the house fell on your children. Now all of your children are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. After Job heard all of these devastating reports, he got up and tore his robe, as was the custom. He shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped the Lord. He said, I was born naked, and at the end of my life, I'll leave here naked. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In spite of everything that had happened to him, Job didn't sin by accusing God of doing anything wrong. Some days later, we, we don't know how long, the angels came again to present themselves to before the Lord, and Satan was once again am, uh, among them. Once again, God singled Satan out and asked him where he had come from, and once again, he, Satan replied that he'd been, you know, just kind of wandering, checking things out down on earth. And once again, God asked Satan if he had noticed Job. God said there was no one like Job because he was a righteous man who, who feared God and turned away from evil. And then God added that Job had maintained his integrity despite the fact that Satan had incited God to move against Job when he didn't deserve it. Satan reminded God that he had taken all of, God's, all of Job's possessions from him, but then God had forbidden him from hurting Job himself. Satan then added that if he were allowed to, be, to attack Job physically, then he was sure that Job would curse God to his face. So God told Satan that he was free to attack Job physically, but then God ordered Satan to spare Job's life. Satan left heaven, 
and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job was in such pain that he sat down in the cold ashes of the fire and scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery. Job's wife found him sitting there in the ashes and and scraping his skin, and, and she said, are you still maintaining your integrity for crying out loud, curse God and die? Job replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Three of Job's wise friends heard what had happened to Job, so so they set out from their homes and and agreed to go to Job's home together so that they could sit with him and, and comfort him and sympathize with him. When they saw their friend Job from a distance as they approached, they hardly recognized him at all. They began to weep aloud just seeing their friend Job, and they tore their robes and put dust up on their head. And then they sat there on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great Job's suffering was. At the end of the seven days, they began to talk to Job about what had happened to him. And if you'll allow me, I'm just going to skip a stone across the rest of the book of Job as, as God prepares our hearts for what James is about to say this morning. Job's three friends began to reason with him and told him, Job, this stuff, all this bad stuff would not be happening to you if you didn't do something bad to deserve it. And so fess up now. Tell us what you did. But then Job defended himself in, in front of his friends. He said, I, I don't deserve what I'm getting, and, and I can tell you right now that there's no point in attempting and trying to live a righteous life if this is how God rewards a righteous person. Job went on, I give anything to be able to present my case in a court of law, my case against God. I don't believe that I could win my case against God, but if I had the opportunity to present my case, at least other people out there would hear it and, and would realize how God is, how, how unjust he's been to me. And then with sorrow in his heart, Job said, I wish there was someone who could put his hand on God's shoulder and put his hand on my shoulder and mediate between us. When Job had finished unsuccessfully defending himself, God showed up and began to talk to Job. God narrowed his eyes as he looked at Job and said, Are you really going to defend yourself by accusing me? And then he said to no one in particular, to the universe at large, Who is this that obscures my counsel and my advice and my knowledge? Who is it that does all of that without knowledge? Who is it that asks me to defend myself to him? Who is it that expects to be able to hold me accountable? God then added, Job, we can talk about this. And and I'm willing to make myself accountable to you, but, but I have a few conditions. So, Job, why don't you take a minute and just whistle up a thunderstorm? Just go ahead and do that, Job. Or... How about adorning yourself with glory and splendor and clothing yourself in honor and majesty as I do? Or perhaps you could take a moment and unleash the fury of your anger so that you can bring down every proud person on the earth. God then said, Job, if you can do these things, then I'll assume that you can take responsibility for yourself and for the outcome of your life without my help. But Job, if you can't do those things, I'm going to contend that you still need me 
to be in charge. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. God, you ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? And in answer to that question, God, Job said, I'm, I'm now here to say, surely I was the one who spoke of things that I did not understand, things that were too hidden for me to know. Job then concluded, God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And in the end, in response to Job's faith, God forgave Job and restored his life by giving him back twice as much as he had originally had. And after all this, Job lived to be a very old man and saw his grandchildren to the fourth generation. And that's the story from God's word. I told you that it was a long story, but the meat of that story... Uh, with, uh, if, you, if we consider the meat of that story with what James is about to say, it's just going to add gravy to, to our meal. You see, we've been talking about rewards, right? And, and we've noticed that some people have truly noticeable, splashy kind of ministries. They're always in the spotlight. They usually have the microphone. And, and we would assume that they're the ones who are likely to, to have the greatest impact for God's kingdom. And we also assume that that means that they will also be the ones who receive the greatest rewards when we finally stand before Jesus, when we get to heaven. And when it comes to rewards, if I know that someone has an advantage over me, I'll just say this, I'd just like to say, if I know that someone has an advantage over me, I'd just like to say that I'm glad that they have that advantage over me because I'm sincerely hoping that they will get the reward instead of me. I'd like to say that, but but i got to tell you, When I know that there's an award on the line and somebody has been given greater gifts than I've been given and is more likely to get the reward instead of me getting the reward, I'm inclined to resent that and to complain about it. It's not fair. He's got this hoity-toity education. He has the nerve to stand in my pulpit and ask people to raise their hand. And it isn't just the three people that always raise their hands when I ask. It's all. I'm sure that you're a lot cuter than I I am when you complain about stuff like that. But I think we'd all have to admit that complaining and grumbling is is never pretty. Especially when we're, we're complaining and grumbling because someone else has an advantage over us and is is likely to be richly rewarded by God. I mean, I guess it's not bad for me to be disappointed that I didn't get the reward, but, but maybe it's not nice for me to, dis- to be disappointed when I see that someone else got the reward. Maybe that's why James says what he says in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. You ever had that happen to you? You know, you're, you're in the middle of talking to yourself. I know you probably don't do that, but you're talking to yourself out loud as, as in your anger you complained about something that seemed uh, unfair against you. And, and while you're talking to yourself out loud, you look up and see that someone's standing in the doorway and they're, they're hearing everything that you're saying as you carry on this nasty conversation with yourself. And uh, some of you are smiling like maybe 
that's happened to you. Some of you may be smiling because it's happened to me, but that's pretty embarrassing when that happens. And, and, and so maybe we should take what James ha- says here by way of advice and stop talking to ourselves out loud and stop muttering under our breath and stop complaining and grumbling about other people who seem to have an advantage over us. Maybe we should remember that God, our judge, is always standing at the door and always overhears us when we complain. And maybe we should remember that when we complain about one of God's children, we're actually complaining about God himself. Because after all, it was God who gave those special gifts to that other person, that person that you've been complaining about. So instead of complaining, we need to be patient. And we need to remember that God has designed each one of us, each one of us. And he has given us the very skills and talents and gifts that we need that are required for each of us to have the exact impact on God's kingdom that he intends for us to have. (coughs) Excuse me. And remember that God has been at that for, for thousands of years, for hundreds of generations along the line. He's, he's given believers gifts and, and sent them into ministry and, and sent them into battle, and they're waiting patiently for their rewards, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. Because when we're talking about receiving a reward, we have to remember that the ones who receive the greatest reward are the ones who remain faithful to God and God's kingdom, even though that requires great personal sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 11 is called Faith's Hall of Fame, Because it tells us stories about people who received promises from God, but died before God kept those promises. They died in faith. They held on to what they believed, even though they uh, they were persecuted. They held on to, to their faith, even though they went to their graves without receiving the reward that God had promised them. Without seeing God do the thing that he said he was going to do. They remained faithful to God and to his kingdom, despite the fact that they didn't see the results. That's what James is talking about in verses 10 and 11. Brothers and sisters, this is an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count blessed those who have persevered. It's the perseverance that we consider to be blessed. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, And falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is that your gut reaction when people start doing what Jesus described in verse 11? Is it your gut reaction to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because you're looking forward to the reward? The prophets of old were persecuted because they took a stand for God and the advancement of God's kingdom. Those prophets had the same rights that we all have. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But those rights were all taken away because those prophets insisted on maintaining and advancing God's kingdom here on earth. The same thing happened to Jesus. No one ever had more rights than Jesus did. No one ever had more rights than Jesus did. He came here as God in human form, but he set all, all of his rights aside. And Jesus finally died a criminal's death 
on an old rugged cross. But through all of his suffering, Jesus remained patiently faithful to God and to God's kingdom. And then there's Job. And I'm going to say this next part delicately, carefully. But there was Job. There was Job whose rights were violated by God himself. God even admits to that. It was God who violated Job's rights. But Job remained faithful through it all. And because of that, he learned things about God that we can only learn when we remain faithful in the midst of suffering. Job had to pay a very high price for the things that he learned on our behalf, but God carried Job through that entire experience. And in the end, Job didn't focus on his rights. He focused on God and God's kingdom, and God rewarded Job for staying faithful. And that's why James says what he does in verse 11. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Is that what you got from that story that I just told you? The Lord is full of compassion and mercy? Well, how on earth is that James' takeaway in this case? Well, because James looked at the whole story and what God accomplished through Job's sufferings. So if we've learned nothing else from the past few weeks, we've learned that we need to put God's kingdom first, right? That that's the thing that God is asking us to do. We need to put God's kingdom first in our lives, and we need to remain faithful to God's God's cause, even though we face suffering and persecution, and we face having our rights taken away as we do that. And so I guess all that remains is for us to make the decision to put God's kingdom first and promise, promise to be faithful to God's cause until we die. So I guess I have to ask, do you promise to faithfully pursue God's kingdom first from this day forward? Before you answer that question, I saw all of you just getting ready to shout it out. But before you answer that question, I, I, you should know that it's a, it's a trick question. It's what the Bukalot would have called a piyakol Uh, uh, a crooked question. They accused me of asking crooked questions all the time and just kind of setting them up for failure. Do you promise? Well, look what it says, what James says in verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, do not take an oath, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. This is so cool. We don't need to swear or take an oath or even promise to put God's kingdom first. We just have to say yes. Yes, Lord. I'll put your kingdom first even if I have to face trials or persecution or the violation of my rights. I will remain faithful to your cause. Yes, Lord. I'll remain faithful as I do what you've you've allowed me to do to advance your kingdom in my community and around the world. Yes, Lord. I'll continue to remain faithful when things get tough because I know, listen, I know that the tougher things get and the more you require me to sacrifice, the greater my reward will be when I see you. Lord, yes, I'll remain faithful because I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back and we can all celebrate your kingdom 
together. I hope you're willing to say yes to all that this morning. And if you are, then in closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we bless your name today for the story that you crafted for us in your word about this man named Job. And God, we know we can't take 40 chapters and, and even pretend to understand them in the short amount of time that we spent this morning. But we do know that Job was willing to sacrifice. We know that there came a moment when he decided he was going to complain, but, but you confronted him after that. You confronted the men who accused him wrongly. You, you stepped up and proved that you are God, that you know things and hidden things. And God, we're, we're reminded that the Scripture says that, that on the day that we stand before you, you will bring to light the hidden motives of our hearts. You'll enlighten the, the universe around us, how much it cost us to follow you, and the reward will follow that. So God, we're looking forward to that day, but in the meantime, God, we're going to buckle our seatbelts, we're going to settle in, and we're going to stop. We're going to say no to pursuing our own personal rights and say yes to pursuing you, your kingdom, and the fulfillment of all that you've promised to do through us if we're willing to let you. God, thank you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Um, if you're new here, then uh, forgive me for this next part. We do it every Sunday. Uh, well, if you're new here, we're glad that you're here. Um, but uh, but uh, we just kind of huddled up. We've agreed together on the play as we head out there. We're going to stop the grumbling and, we're there, and the complaining. We're going to stop muttering under our breath as though God can't, as though we think God can't hear us. We're going to stop talking to ourselves out loud. And we're going to remember that God's standing right there at the door. So don't embarrass yourself with that kind of stuff. And we're going to take what comes with praise. Because we know that God is making it possible for our, our reward to increase. So we're heading out there. If I'm the coach, then all that's left is for me to say, ready? Go get him Potter's house. <laughs>